Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 55, The Case of Coulda v. Shoulda, where we will be looking at Chapter 114 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of lessons of the past. I like that. Good choice on the title. Thought you might appreciate it. Alrighty. I'm sure everybody already knows all of this, but little explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. Then we will share for Nemos of the week and a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are no affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his and spoilers for anything and everything that we've ever seen Pat Rothfuss write. I think that covers it. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right. So we chose for this single chapter, Lessons of the Past. Real quick. This chapter has absolutely, is it second season of Legend of Korra vibes? A little bit. There's a lot of exposition. Yeah, it just feels the same to me. Yeah, a lot of it is taking place with a story within a story, which the more I think about it is kind of a recurring theme in especially this portion of the King Killer Chronicle. Well, let's think about it. We are already in a story within a story. So now it is a story within a story within a story. Yes. But this isn't the first time, though. I mean, like, Quoth is all about telling stories. So, I mean, even from the beginning, we hear the story of Lanray. We hear first from his parents and then also from Scarpy. We've got the stories of the Adem that Quoth tells Will and Sim. And then we've got the stories told on the road with Quoth and his band of merry mercenaries. We've got now the Adem story of their 99 stories and sort of the meta framing device that surrounds these stories. It's kind of story inception. Yeah. And I think part of that is just this is how Quoth, who is more than anything else, ravenous for stories. These are the sorts of things that resonate with him. And I think that's why he, as the narrator of this story, cares as much about sharing these as anything else. These are the things that stick with him. Whatever else we can say about Kvothe, whether he's a liar, a thief, whatever, one thing we do know is that he really does care about stories and these stick with him and they mold him. And so if he were looking to understand anything about the Adam culture or the Lithani or the Katan, Naturally, it is the story that would shape him and that that's the thing that he would pass on. So I think that's a really important thing just right off the gate. Yeah, stories are big. So anyway, let's actually dive into the meat of the text here. So we start with Quoth aching to practice his loot. I have a question for you. Mm. Now that you have been more consistent about playing your guitar. Do you feel that itch almost to play it more often? I wouldn't describe it as an itch. What would you describe it as? It's just a, 
I feel like doing that now. So I'm going to go do it. So it's not really like a compulsion. It's more of just a idle thought. Yeah. I get a compulsion to do things. I feel like almost needing to satisfy something. I think that Quoth and I are more similar in that way than you are to him. Yeah, I would agree with it. We know that he does a little bit of practicing with courting, but because he can't strum. In this particular instance, he doesn't. Oh, right. That's later. This is bookended by him being in his room at the beginning and at the end. And at the beginning, he is trying his best to adhere to the cultural norms to make sure he's giving the best of impressions. And then at the end, he is giving into his own wants, but maybe not fully. He has had the shirt scared out of him by the idea that if he fails, it will result in Vachette removing two of his fingers and of all the things he cannot lose. His fingers and his voice, they're just a bridge too far. And instead of confidently continuing on and trying his best, like he was at the beginning of this chapter, at the end of this chapter, he is contemplating how he can get out of this without being hurt in that specific way. He doesn't care about the rest of him. He cares about his hands and to a lesser extent, his voice. Yeah, we'll get to that because I have some thoughts on it. We note that Carceret is removed, but not gone. Always lurking. And then Quoth is also very, very curious. And now that he has someone to speak with who can pretty easily be on his level, he's just peppering her with questions. And I find it very funny that he specifically waited a few days to ask about the Chandrian. And he says... Personally, I thought that this showed exceptional restraint. Yeah. I'm like, wow, he waited whole days to ask about this. Entire days. Yes. <laughs> but it does also call to mind the fact that when you're younger, time seems to go a little slower. Each day accounts for a larger fraction of your total lifespan. Vachette naturally is not amused by this. <laughs> and... It's like, we're not going to talk about this. How is this at all relevant? Nope, 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 nope. This isn't a discussion. Nope. Mm -mm. Which to me means this is a thing. You have hit upon a thing. Shut up. We are not going to discuss it. I do want to point out the reason he drops it is because he doesn't want to lose his only companion. He doesn't want to go back to being truly and utterly alone. So... After he asks about the Chandran and basically gets told to stufu, he then asks something that really reminds me a lot of when I was in school and any time we had to do something that I thought was tedious or boring or pointless. Okay, math. <laughs> Which was to ask, well, how am I ever going to use this? What's the purpose of all of this? That was a go-to stalling tactic because then I could get my teacher to tell us a story. And I'll never forget this. My teacher's response was pretty much the same as Vachette's here, which is so that you can pass this test. <laughs> yeah, it specifically is to teach you enough so that you no longer fight like a little boy drunk on his mother's wine. And then there is a description of Vachette looking oddly 
girlish. So I assume juvenile is the better way to put that if we're going to veer away from something that sounds like girlish is a bad thing. Maybe youthful. I think juvenile in this particular instance, because what it's meant to describe is how Foth feels kind of put in his place in a very odd way due to the fact that Vachette does not look like a superior to him. Though, kid, you're 16. But, like, it's doing nothing for his sense of pride that someone who looks like a little child, almost, or like a young teenager at this point, I don't know what the right way to put it is, but, like, looks juvenile instead of looks like what he assumes a leader should look like with, I guess, not having pigtails. I don't know. I take it as Vachette being practical because I don't know how long the longest your hair has been. Maybe in college in the glorious bleached orange mane that you had. Please, flowing bronze mane is the appropriate nomenclature. Sure. But when you have long hair and you're trying to do anything that involves spinning, turning, doing anything fast being anywhere in the wind, it gets in your face. And so having your hair braided has nothing to do with your age and it has absolutely nothing to do with your maturity level. And actually, in this particular instance, it shows that she's smart. But it also shows that Quoth is easily caught up on appearances. I think that the practicality of it is twofold on Vachette's part. Vachette is a canny observer, for one thing. So she knows all of the cultural connotations that wearing her hair and pigtails is going to have for Kvothe. And in addition to the practical element of keeping her hair out of her way, out of her eyes, she knows that this is the sort of thing that will be extra humbling to Kvothe, who is someone who is prone to hubris. That's a nice way to put it. To continue on... During this attempt to stall having to learn more, Quoth asks, no, I mean, why are you teaching me at all? The impression that I get is that Tempe was wrong to teach me. So why continue teaching me? Yeah, this is actually something that kind of pleases and slightly displeases Vachette. She's glad that Quoth is asking it, but she's also kind of dismayed that it took him this long. Also that it wasn't his first question. <laughs> Although I kind of have to say this. Sometimes it is true, better late than never. And if you are asking, well, why wasn't that the first thing you asked or it took you long enough? Sometimes that's punishing the behavior you want to see, which means that it's a little less likely to happen going forward because you've got a negative connotation with it. And, you know, people arrive at conclusions when they arrive at them and because they come to a situation from all sorts of contexts and backgrounds. And so I think this is one of those things where, yeah, it's a really good question. And it's also kind of a hard one to arrive at. Remember, Quoth comes from an educational background where pretty much anything he wants to learn, he learns. and if there are consequences for his learning, all of it falls on him. This is a new situation for him. Someone that he cares about will suffer consequences because of his actions. 
And so I think it's starting to weigh on him in ways that it never did before. Machette answers that Shan does not mind that you know of the Lothani, though others feel differently. But there is an agreement on the subject of Arcatan. It is not for barbarians. And so the only way for this to be made right is to make Kvoth into something other than a barbarian. And so that means that if that happens, Tempe would no longer be wrong for teaching him. And then also, if Quoth is accepted into the school, then that means that he is accepted into the Adem, which means he's no longer a barbarian, which means a whole bunch of recursive logic in how this is not a complete and utter fork up. And I want to hit on this. So this is actually what ties into our title. This is our first hint at it. If the Ketan represents power, the ability to enforce your will on the physical world, the Lathani is about knowing when is the right time and way to apply that power. What is the wise use of that power? And so what Shan is getting at and what Vachette is getting at is in teaching Kvoth power without also teaching the responsibility. So he's Spider-Man. Yeah. That's where the barbarism comes in. That was the mistake that Tempe made. And again, Tempe taught him coulda, didn't teach him shoulda. And to be fair to Tempe, he was upfront about, I don't know shoulda. I'm still trying to figure that out. So we go into a more in-depth explanation of how the school works. Just because Vachette is teaching him now doesn't mean that he's actually accepted into the school. He won't be accepted into the school unless or until he passes a specific type of test. We know what the test is. It's essentially to what's the game where you go up and like slap a tree? No idea. So essentially like that test is to go up and slap the sword tree. And not get cut. Because it is kind of one of those things where it looks so much more simple and you're going to get hurt. Exactly. And then there's more discussion of community and what it means to the ADEM to be a mercenary or to want to go to school to be a mercenary. So for the ADEM, mercenary isn't exactly the right word. For them, someone who goes out wearing the red is someone who is gathering money to send back home to their family and also representing the ADEM to the rest of the world. They're kind of ambassadors for what the ADEM provide. Vachette asks a number of questions at Kvoth. What are you called if you fight out of duty for your country? A soldier. If you fight for the law? A constable. Or a bailiff. If you fight for your reputation? That's a brawler. Or a duelist, is what Kvoth says. If you fight for the good of others? An emir. Which... Both answers without thinking. And Vachette's response is, well, that's an interesting choice. Clearly that means something to her. I wish we got more answers, but we really don't. The Amir will remain ever mysterious. And so they have a word, Sethlin, or Kethlin, probably Sethlin, that applies to their view of what Aiden mercenaries are, but that word does not translate into a Turin. Yeah, mercenary only scratches the surface because, yeah, 
close perception of a mercenary is someone who's just fighting for money. And that can be anything from your run of the mill caravan guard to a soldier who doesn't know how to do anything else. And so Vachette says, this is why it is not an easy decision for Cheyenne to make. She must balance what is right against what is best for her school. And she ends with, personally, I think she's hoping the problem will take care of itself. And Quoth asks about that. Bichette means, you could have run off. Many assumed you would. I could have decided you weren't worth teaching. You could die during your training, become disabled. Accidents happen all the time. And if Carceret had been your teacher, you know, dot, 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 he'd probably be dead. So while that's a dark view of things, I do think that that line there, if Carceret had been your teacher, if Shayan really did want Kvothe out of the way and was looking for a way for the problem to just, quote, take care of itself, she could have easily done that and it would have, right? The fact that she put Kvothe with Vachette, who is actually a very good teacher for Kvothe, tells me that Shayan actually does want this project to succeed. She isn't hoping that this problem just takes care of itself. But she also does know that if the problem takes care of itself, quote, she doesn't lose anything. And I do think there is something to be said for the difficulty of balancing doing the right thing with a capital R and then doing the thing that's best for your organization. You know, whether that's your family, your friends, your company, what have you, your business. Those two things don't always line up. And so finding a way to make those line up, it requires some finesse. Shayan didn't get to be where she was without being someone who thinks carefully about these sorts of things. And that's really what the Lithani is all about. It is finding that balance. I don't think that you can practice the Lithani without it. That's the nature of it. This is where we have the discussion about the test. And Kvothe asks, and if I don't pass? Or what if you decide that I'm not good enough to take it? And Vachette says, this is where things grow complicated. And then she immediately pivots and says, come along. Shan is asked to speak with you today. So now we have a break and we are taken to a place where Shan is practicing her K-Tan. I think it's really kind of cool here how Kvothe describes her movements as being very slow and deliberate. And that makes it all the more immaculate. I watched silently as she moved at the speed of honey spreading on a tabletop. It makes it more difficult, but she did perform it flawlessly. There are a few references to wind, like a curl of wind brought the sweet smell of summer grass and the sound of leaves. This is all contemplative and reminds me of my favorite chapter, which we covered in episode eight, all the way back. I want to say that was four years ago. Yeah, thereabouts. And how Kvothe played his lute, mimicking nature. And now there is a more meditative part of this where Shayan is kind of one with nature. It has the feeling of Tai Chi to me. I think that's what we're supposed to get. And I think the interesting part about this is if someone is doing something really fast, you can't see if there are mistakes. 
But if they're doing it really slowly and very deliberately, you can see everything. And really what this shows is just the immaculate precision and control that Cheyenne has. Like she's not wobbling or anything like that. She is just moving exactly how she means to be. She is a wizard. <laughs> yeah, actually, Shan as a wizard is pretty much perfect. Specifically the wise part of that. So after Shan finishes her Katan, she invites Quoth to sit with her. And she asks him if Tempe has told him about the 9 and 90 stories. He answers no. And she says, good. That wasn't Tempe's place to reveal. So then we get a history lesson about the Lithani and the Adam way of life. They weren't always this sort of silent, almost monastic movement. And they used to practice archery and combat as a means of self-defense. As shepherds, it was useful to know how to use a bow and arrow because that's how you protected your flock. This is a story of Aeth. Is that how you would pronounce it? I think it was Aetha. I will go with Aetha. That's fine. He didn't mean to create a school. It's just what happened from what occurred. Aetha starts out as a shepherd who decides he wants to become a great archer. And so he practices and he practices and he practices to the point where he reaches basically mythical levels. You know, he can hit a piece of silk blowing in the wind. Once again, we have more references to wind. Word of his prowess spreads far and wide. And this means that you have people coming to both learn from him and to duel him for pride. And this kind of becomes a thing that he gets caught up in. He starts to believe his own myth. He's the greatest archer who ever lived. And it's really important to him that everybody else knows it. All he cares about is his physical prowess. And eventually he takes on a student, Raitha, and she's a prodigy. She's about as good as he is. And the two of them have a great relationship together as student and teacher. And things are going great. You know, the school is thriving. Everybody is aware of how good they are. Things are great until one night, Aetha and Raitha have an argument. The specifics of this argument are unknown. All we know is that a duel is brought forward. Raitha challenges her teacher to this competition. Now, at this point, Aetha has shot in multiple duels over his career. And as the deadliest archer in the land, he has made it out of all of these alive. And if his opponents haven't been killed outright, they've been pretty terribly maimed. Now, Aetha, as the challenged, is able to pick where he's going to start out with. And because he knows that Raitha is probably the one archer in all the land who could beat him. Being his prized pupil, he decides to take a defensive position in some blowing trees. And of course, he brings his one sharp arrow. Meanwhile, Raitha takes a position at the top of a hill, completely out in the open, framed perfectly against the sky, and she comes unarmed. So then what does Aetha do? He shoots her right in the heart. You did miss something that is why he did that. Mm. She took a pacifist stand. She sat down on the hill and acted like she had no cares in the world. And this made Aetha mad. So he shot her. Thank you. So again, this is someone acting out of pride, out of hubris. So then the arrow strikes home 
as Aetha knew it would. Still seated, arrow sprouting from her chest, Raytha drew a long ribbon of white silk from beneath her shirt. She took a white feather from the arrow's fletching, dipped it in her blood, and wrote four lines of poetry. Then Aetha held the ribbon aloft for a long moment, waiting as the wind pulled first one way, then another. So here's that poem. Aetha, near my heart, without vanity, the ribbon, without duty, the wind, without blood, the victory. This draws a tear from Vachette because, I mean, it's tragic, right? It's an epic in the same way that a lot of the songs that Quoth sings are epics. It's this grand tragedy. There's a melodrama to it. And it says something also because Vachette, like all of the Adem, holds her emotions extremely close. So for it to actually elicit a verbal sob like that, you know, that is incredibly powerful. And the fact that she is sharing this with Foth and Shayan shows that these are people that she holds dearly. She does view them with respect and honor and care. After Aetha realizes his mistake, because duh, he gives control of the school to Raytha as she latest dying. She only lasts for another three days. But in those three days, she gives him the gift of 99 stories. And then says, the hundredth story is the most important. And that one shall be known when I awake. She goes to sleep. And of course, she doesn't wake up. Aetha lived for another 40 years and never killed again. Those 99 stories formulate the basis of the Lithani. They're the philosophical root that is all about the wisdom that tempers knowledge, that tempers power. It's very sobering. Quoth, you know, he's spent his entire life pursuing the power to do what he wants, pursuing the power to get his revenge on the Chandrian, to get the knowledge to make himself feel safe, to satisfy his curiosity. And all of these are all well and good, but wisdom is the one thing that has eluded him. It's that thing that says, now that I know how to do a thing, when is the time to do it? What is the appropriate way to do it? And I think it's chastening to Quoth. I think there's a reason why this sticks with him. Because his response isn't just, oh, that's cool. It's to start thinking very seriously about the consequences of his actions and the effect that he has on the people in his life. Because for the first time in almost several hundred pages, it feels like, he actually thinks about the people back at the university, Will and Sim, Master Kilvin, it starts him thinking deeply about the consequences of his actions, both for himself and for Tempe. And it prompts a line of conversation with Vachette that does not go well for him. At the end of Shane's story, Quoth says, I would very much like to hear those nine and 90 stories. And Shane just says, they're not for barbarians. And then she invites Quoth to come and watch as she and others are going to be fighting the next day. And at that point, it's kind of a dismissal. Go ahead and I'm done with you guys now. Vachette seems very pleased by the fact that Cheyenne has asked Quoth to join in watching the fight. And yes, at that point, Quoth does start thinking about the people he's left at the university. Kilvin, he was wondering what Kilvin's reaction would be if Quoth just brought a stranger in to see the sigil tree for blood and bone that is in the fishery. 
he's coming to the realization that the reactions of the Adem, the way that they view a stranger in their midst, is not outside of what should be expected. It's not unwarranted. That's the word I was looking for. And he starts asking again, what will happen to Tempe if all of this ends badly? And the simple answer is he will be ostracized. He will be stripped of his reds and his name and his sword, and he will be cut away from the school. And it is unlikely that any other Adem will take him in. And we got to remember, where would Tempe go? He can't really assimilate into a Turin society. There isn't anywhere else for him to go. He's probably going to die. And then Quoth turns back to himself. If I had run, would I actually have been allowed to go? No. So what would my punishment be? It's not like imprisonment is a good option. You're not just going to keep me here locked up somewhere. And this is where we get to, you know, options of like maiming and possibly killing Quoth if he doesn't succeed and all this other. And the one that freaks him out the most is the one that Vachette seems to think is the easiest to deal with. The most merciful. Cutting off two of his fingers. And Quoth kind of catastrophizes over this. Kinda? He pretty much goes from being super chill about this whole experience to being, I gotta get out of here. Right. He's gone from this is something that might happen to this is something that could happen to this is something that will happen. Like we know that Quoth deals with anxiety and a lot of that is due to the trauma that he suffered. And I think in this case, he picked at a scab that he didn't need to pick at and it doesn't help him. Never mind the fact that even as he is struggling and he's aware that he's struggling, he is actually making progress and that he does have people in his life here who do care about his well-being. There might not be many, but that can change. Now, he kind of goes into a fugue state. He stumbles across a pair of lovers and in the oddest way possible is like embarrassed to have done so because remember this is after the Florian stuff previously like yeah before the Florian stuff would have probably been incredibly like ah and then after the Florian stuff though like immediately after he had been like want a third <laughs> and then now he's just like back to that and I think it's possible that that's because all that's in his head is this primal lizard brain. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. But what it says to me is that me in this situation of don't hurt me is my livelihood and my passions. These are the things that he has built into his sense of self. Yes. So much so that while he is, again, not able to consciously notice his own self, he starts humming in the midst of everybody at the school. And I love this, this line, so I'm going to read it. A young girl of about 10 wore an expression of open amazement on her face, and a man in his mercenary reds looked at me as if he had just seen me wipe my ash with a piece of bread and eat it. Yeah. It's also worth noting the tune that he's humming here is Leave the Town Tinker. Yeah. And here we get our first mention of Will and Sim since forever ago. So 
to bookend, Quoth is in his room catastrophizing over the potential of losing his fingers. He tries to practice his courting and all that he wants is to be able to strum. And that's just not a thing. He says it was as frustrating as trying to kiss someone using only one lip and he soon gave up on it. He brought out his shade and wrapped it around himself. So it's kind of like he's in a Snuggie and he thinks about the university and of Will and Sim and of Ari and Devi and Fella. And he reflects on how he had forgotten what it was like to be truly alone. He then thought about his family and he thought about the Chandrian of Cinder. He thought of Denna. He thought of what the Cathay said. He thought of Denna's patron and the things that he had said during the fight with Denna. And about the time that she had slipped on the road and he'd caught her. So what he is doing is ruminating. It is a thing that I am very familiar with because it is something I, to be very honest, I didn't know that not everyone does this. Not everyone has a running monologue of just stuff that they're populating and remembering and fearing and thinking about and hopeful that just like this, this running ticker of like, it looks like a, or it feels like a, a Chiron, just like that ticker on the bottom of the news just won't shut up. I didn't know that that was a thing that could be turned off until I'd had a weed cookie <laughs> once. And then it shut up for like two days and then it crashed back in. And it was so weird for me, but he is sitting there. He is ruminating until he falls asleep and it is exhausting. Yeah. At this point, when I look at what Kvothe's going through, really all I feel is just compassion. He's in a tough spot. The stakes are high. And for once in his life, he actually cares about those stakes. And he's pondering his regrets, things that he misses, and the things that he's taken for granted in his life, the people that he's taken for granted. You know, if he was maybe a little cavalier about them before, I don't think he is now. A little bit of introspection and reflection and rumination is not inherently a bad thing. I'd say that the rumination might be a bad thing. Excessive rumination is. I'd say that having a bit of perspective on that sort of thing from someone who has not done any of that historically, who hasn't allowed themselves to, means you start acting thoughtlessly and you act unwisely. I think Kvothe is getting a dose of reality. And it is not pretty, but it is necessary. So with that, let's talk about our Frenemos. I'm not sure who I want to pick between Vachette, Cheyenne, and Raytha. But I think Raytha's the one that's calling the loudest. She's also the one we haven't heard about before. So let's learn about her. I think there's not a whole lot of her in the story. But what is there is calm, cool, collected, thoughtful. She tries to teach her teacher and he is too stubborn to learn. They have a disagreement and ultimately she does teach her teacher, but it's through her sacrifice. It's through her death, but also in the gifts that she bestows upon him and the school before her death. We don't know the nine and 90 stories, but we do know of the Lothani. And if what she laid out was the building blocks of Lilithani, then it's a no-brainer that she's wise. If you look at just the ripple effects that she's had, it's profoundly transformative. The effect that she has in her sacrifice on Aetha is a sea change. 
he goes from being proud and vain and boastful and someone who delights only in his ability to inflict his will on the world around him into someone who is thoughtful and measured and teaches others to be that way. And in so doing, he actually exercises his will far more effectively than if he was just someone who could kill people really easily. He learns to be someone who tries to take the right action, to do the right thing, and teach others to do the right thing, and how to learn the right thing, how to listen. He is someone who truly reckons with the consequences of his power. It could have been him as a choice, except for his decision to shoot out of anger. Yeah. Because he is wise in taking her lessons, but he is not wise for loosing that arrow. Absolutely. Meanwhile, the one thing that torments him most is that because of his actions, he would never be able to learn the most important story there was. And neither will anyone else. Do you think she knows she was going to die? I kind of think she did. And I actually think that the hundredth story is this story that Shane is telling or the story of Aetha's life afterward or both. I think that's a great read on it. I really like it. Good pick. Thank you. So for a thing of the week, it's my turn. This is not a normal thing of the week. Historically, things of the week have been bits of culture or practices or things like that. But this week, I've picked something seemingly mundane. I'm talking about refrigeration. I figured you would be. (laughs) So sometimes it's extremely easy to take for granted modern conveniences. We found that out the hard way when our refrigerator died almost two weeks ago. More than two weeks ago. Yeah. In that time, we've had to make do with shelf-stable goods and the occasional takeout order. Occasional. Let's be real. There's only so much we can do instant ramen. But it's also meant sacrificing small things that we've come to appreciate, like having creamer in our morning coffee. Friends, what I'm trying to say is that it's been a rough couple weeks. Without getting into the gory details, we've got a solution on the way next week but it just really underscores how much we as a society have come to rely on this wonder of engineering. So how did modern refrigeration come to be? Let's take a look at the historical approach as documented on energy.gov. Yay, you know what? The return of the interesting fact. It is also our thing of the week, so hooray. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with ancient refrigeration. The need to keep things cool has pretty much been there since humans started hunting and gathering. Because meat spoils. So people tried to keep food fresh by keeping it at lower temperatures for thousands of years. Before mechanical refrigeration systems were introduced, ice harvesting using ice and snow to cool food was the only method available. We know that the Chinese harvested ice from rivers and lakes as early as 1000 BCE, and they even had religious ceremonies for filling and emptying ice cellars. We also know that around 400 BCE, the Persians stored food in structures called yakchal. These were domed buildings made from mud brick and were insulated by walls up to six feet thick to keep ice frozen during even the warmest summer months. Many of these structures still stand today. The Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans used pits as well by placing large amounts of snow into the pits and covering them with insulating materials like grass, chaff, or branches of trees. The Egyptians and ancient peoples of India would moisten the outside of jars and the resulting evaporation would cool the water that was inside the jars. In the 1800s, natural refrigeration was a vibrant part of the economy. 
In England, servants collected ice in the winter and put it into ice houses. These were places where the sheets of ice were packed in salt, wrapped in flannel, and stored underground to keep them frozen until summer. In the United States, natural ice harvested from the pristine rivers and lakes of the northern states, particularly in New England, was in demand, and harvested ice was stored in large quantities in ice houses and covered with sawdust for insulation. Naturally, harvesting of ice is difficult and dangerous, so people looked for artificial ways of refrigeration. And this is the process of removing heat from an enclosed space or from a substance to lower its temperature. So to cool foods, a refrigerator uses the evaporation of a liquid to absorb heat, and then the liquid or refrigerant evaporates at an extremely low temperature, creating cool temperatures inside the refrigerator. Basically, it produces cool temperatures by rapidly vaporizing a liquid through compression. Quickly expanding vapor requires kinetic energy and draws the energy it needs from the immediate area, which then loses energy and becomes cooler. Cooling generated by the rapid expansion of gases is the primary means that we use today. So the advent of modern refrigerators changed everything. This eliminated the need for ice houses and other crude means of keeping food cool. The first one to make a breakthrough was Scottish professor William Cullen at the University of Glasgow in 1748. So he designed a small refrigerating machine that used the cooling effect of rapidly evaporating liquid into gas. Cullen's invention, though ingenious, was not suitable for any practical purpose. But it's also known as a swamp cooler. <laughs> yep. Ben Franklin and John Hadley experimented with this in 1758 by using a bulb of a mercury thermometer and concluded that the evaporation of liquids such as alcohol and ether could be used to lower the temperature of an object below the freezing point of water, but it just wasn't practical or safe. I mean, Freon's not practical or safe either, but it exists in all of our fridges. So the modern process that we know today grew from the work of numerous inventors in the 1800s. In 1805, an American inventor named Oliver Evans designed a blueprint for the first refrigeration machine, but he never built a concept. It wasn't until 1834 that the first practical machine was built by Jacob Perkins based on Evans' design. In 1851, an American physician named John Gorey patented a compressed air refrigerator to cool the air for his yellow fever patients. And in 1876, a German engineer named Carl von Linden patented the process of liquefying gas that has become a part of basic refrigeration technology. Household refrigerators became a necessity as more people moved into growing cities and further away from food sources. The demand for fresh food was also increased throughout the 19th century. With more distance between fresh food and people's homes, became especially important to keep perishable food cold, both during transit and in homes to prolong shelf life. In time, refrigeration became more affordable to the wider population. It allowed new settlement patterns to emerge, food started lasting longer, and became a lot healthier, imposing less of a health risk. Manufactured ice boxes that look closer to modern refrigerators became popular in the 1800s. These designs consisted of insulated metal or wooden cabinet-type structures with a tray or compartment that held a large block of ice. These ice blocks were regularly delivered to households with ice boxes. In the 19th century, the first ice boxes started appearing in England, and in 1913, American Fred W. Wolfe invented the first home electric refrigerator, which featured a refrigeration unit on top of an ice box. So I always think about my grandfather, because he always referred to it as an ice box. I always knew what he was talking about, too, because it was the box in the house where there was ice. So, okay. <laughs> I think I was at least aware, maybe from cartoons or maybe from historical dramas or maybe from something, I don't know, of large ice blocks being used in a refrigerator-esque 
thing for keeping food cold. So, yeah, I mean, the mass production of domestic fridges only began in 1918. So it's a relatively new invention here, just over 100 years. So the first mass produced one was from William C. Durant. However, at initial influx, they were really only available to the very rich, as typically happens with early technologies. The interesting thing is that the refrigerators developed up through the 20s used foul-smelling toxic gases like ammonia, methyl chloride, and sulfur dioxide as their refrigerants. Naturally, this led to several fatal accidents from leaks in the 20s. In response, synthetic alternatives were developed for a safer alternative to toxic gases previously used in the vapor compression process. One of these was Freon. Its low boiling point, surface tension, and viscosity makes it an ideal refrigerant, and it being a safer refrigerant helped home refrigerators increase in popularity. By the 40s, they became a staple in private homes, and compressor refrigerators using Freon would become the standard for almost all home kitchens. And you know what's great? Is that refrigerators from the 70s, 80s, and 90s still exist and still work, and I made a joke with a friend of ours that his fridge, which is from the 90s, would probably outlast our fancy new one that came with the house. <laughs> and I was right. I really wish you weren't. I wish that too. Oh, well. At any rate, next time you crack open a cold beverage or cook up something fresh, spare a thought for the appliance that makes that possible. I mean, like, our microwave also died almost a year ago. We don't use that. That's fine. We don't care. It's whatever. The refrigerator. The refrigerator is necessary. Yeah, we've got multiple ways that we can heat up food. Right now, we've only got one way to cool it down. Yeah, well, right now, we don't have any way to cool it down. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, with that, let's move on to seven words from the books. It is your turn. It is my turn. There were a lot of choices. Not a lot of them great. How would this take care of itself? And what is my punishment to be? This is a story of years ago is very similar to a seven word thing that is still up on our Instagram that was selected probably four years ago. But I think it was a thing that Scarpy said. So that's an interesting parallel. But the one that really spoke to me is one that I already said earlier today. Personally, I thought this showed exceptional restraint. Thanks, Quoth. Good job, Quoth. Good job, Phoenix. Thank you. So, tell me, what are your seven words from life? So, this is uh, just a little thank you. Thanks for restringing and cleaning my axe. That's adorable. Words that wouldn't have been your seven words had we actually recorded on time. For the little behind the scenes, we didn't record on Sunday, which is our normal record day. We recorded today, which is Monday. And it's a little over a week before you hear this. And I decided to clean and restring our guitars. And I really appreciated it. I love my guitar. And it always feels really good to get it all reconditioned. And, you know, it's not a super old guitar or anything, but... It isn't a super old guitar. It's a year old. It's less than a year old. This is actually the first time I've restrung this guitar. Yeah. And I'm really excited to pull it out and play. This will be its first time without stock strings. So that'll be nice. And it just showed a deep amount of care and thoughtfulness. And I really felt extremely loved. 
Aww. And it really warmed the cockles of my heart. Aww. So just had to share that one. That was my seven words. <laughs> I like them. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapter 115 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Only Way Out is Through. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and what passes for social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so and want to take pity on us for having to replace a fridge, uh, you can support us at patreon.com slash waystonepod. Don't feel any obligation to do so. We're fine. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! The first one to make a breakthrough was Scottish professor that uh, Scottish professor. <laughs>